Please take your Bible with me. Turn with me to the first gospel in the New Testament, the gospel of Matthew. Last week, Pastor Tim finished up his sermon series preaching through the, the book of Daniel. Terrific series uh, for us as we live here in, in 2023. And I was reminded once again that, um, that I am nowhere close to finishing the book of Matthew, uh, even though I started teaching it back in March of 2019, exactly four years ago. Um, so, someone remind me next time I start a book not to pick one with 28 chapters. But it's okay. Um, we are going to, to keep chipping away um, at it as I have opportunity to preach. Um, and I'll do my best to kind of give us some context as we jump into the book each time. What is the, Ma- the book of Matthew all about? Um, as we've seen since the very first chapter, the purpose of the gospel of Matthew is to present Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah the long-awaited son of David, the king of God's eternal throne, uh, the son of God, the king. And we've seen this kingdom theme come up again and again throughout the book. Let me just walk through some of those with you. Matthew begins chapter 1 in his gospel by tracing Jesus' kingly lineage back to David, back to King David. And we see the kingly worship by the Magi in chapter 2 that come from the east in search of the king of the Jews. In chapter 3, John the Baptist calls people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he announces Jesus' arrival um, as, as the herald of the king. Move on to ch- chapter 4, and Jesus continues the same message of, um, that the kingdom is at hand. And he begins calling a particular group of young men to come and, and follow and learn from him. And then Matthew 5 to 7 gives us, Matthew records Jesus' authoritative teaching about what the kingdom is what it means to be a true citizen of God's kingdom. So the, the kingdom of God is for those that are poor in spirit, it says. Um, it's for those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says the kingdom is um, for those that, that whose righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. They do the will of God. And then in chapter 8 to 9, after his teaching about the kingdom, we have his, his healing, his kingdom healing. Matthew follows up by recording the sampling of Jesus' kingly authority over sickness and sin and nature and demons. And so Matthew wraps up chapter 9 with these words. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. As Jesus is looking out over the crowds, his heart is moved within him as he sees people who are, they're they're helpless, like helpless and hopeless sheep. And what does he do next? He turns his attention to his followers, says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then Jesus starts calling names of different disciples. Peter, you come over here. Um, Andrew, James, John, come on over. He calls 12 of those 
disciples over to him to come close, and he informs them that they are the first laborers that he is going to send out to rescue lost sheep and reap a harvest. I want you to imagine with me that you're one of those disciples. You're sitting there. Jesus has just told you that he's going to send you out. What would you be thinking? I don't know about you, but I'd be terrified. It's one thing to follow Jesus, to listen and learn from him. Going out, though, to represent him, continue his ministry, is completely different. Uh, Recently, I volunteered to coach uh, my son's um, basketball teams. Uh, That's four- to six-year-olds and seven- to nine-year-olds. It's pretty comical to watch Um, and to coach. Um, Most of the kids have never played basketball team before on a basketball team. And frankly, I've actually never, I've only played once um, or twice uh, when I was that age. Um, Otherwise, I just kind of played street ball. Um, A few weeks ago, we had our first game, and... uh, after I tried to teach them the game of basketball and the rules and the positions, I, I called the players over to me, you know, huddle around me so I could, you know, pick the starting five. And no one wanted to go out on the court. <laughs> they had never played a real game, and they're, they're just terrified. They're like, not me, coach, not me. You know, now, now this week, they're all like, you know, send me out. But um, at that point, they were just terrified. None of them wanted to go out and play. All of my teaching and my working with them was supposed to prepare them to be sent out on the court. But when it came down to it, they were just more comfortable sitting there on the bench. Would that describe you? Are you comfortable to just sit on a chair, sit in a pew, and you want to learn about the gospel? You love your faith. um, Learn more about what God has done for you. But you're not ready to go out and actually share that with others. Jesus didn't really give his disciples a choice. But he did give them instructions. And although these instructions were given to this special group of 12 apostles in a unique time in history before Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, the nature of the passage that we're about to study here in Matthew 10, I think gives us certain principles that we can apply as we obey Jesus' command given at the end of the book of Matthew when he commissioned all his disciples, including us, to go out. So, take your Bible. Let us now read these instructions here in Matthew 10, starting in verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving lost sheep, sending your own son to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You've not only saved us, but you've, you've sent us out to go and rescue lost sheep. You help us from this passage to understand the weight of that commission for us and the instructions that should guide us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Jesus begins his instructions here in verse 5 and 6 by answering the question, where are we going? Jesus, um, as Jesus answers this question, we find out that the mission is focused. Number one, the mission is focused. Verse 5 says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, the phrase, go nowhere among the Gentiles, um, could be more literally translated, don't go on the roads leading to the land of the Gentiles. If you look um, at this map, I have some of the major roads there in first century surrounding Galilee. You see Galilee there in the middle, and then um, the, 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 some of the roads that are cutting through it, going north, south, east, west. Um, you can see that Jesus could be referring there to, um, to Tyre and Sidon in the north, um, Gentile towns, as well as the cities of the Decapolis um, that are over there in the east. Then you have the region of Samaria, below Galilee, um, where Jesus also said not, not to visit, don't go the roads to those, to those towns. And in this first missionary journey, Jesus, he's, he's focusing their mission, you can see, on, on the villages there in Galilee, uh, which included many Jews. And so Jesus refers to this as, as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why does Jesus do this? In case you're wondering, this is not an isolated event. In Matthew 15, Jesus is um, he's in the district of Tyre and Sidon up north. Um, I point there because that's where my screen is. You're looking up here. Up there, up north. Um, and a Gentile woman comes to him and asks for help. And Jesus basically says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, now, there's more to that story that you should know. There's more um, about this priority for the Jews that we need to understand. Um, and because this has been, as I was studying this week, it's, it's such a point of like curiosity and kind of concern for me. Like, what's, what's going on here? Um, we're actually going to take the entire Bible study time later this morning and kind of focus on it. Um, we'll be taking a closer look at the reasons for Jesus' prioritization of preaching and ministry to the Jews. So there's my little um, advertisement there for Bible study. Um, but for now, I just want to say two things. Number one, God's plan for justification by faith. Um, by faith, has always been available to all peoples. And secondly, although Jesus' ministry, he was, was primarily focused on Jewish people, um, the Gospels are, are just littered with purposeful encounters where Jesus intentionally reached out to non-Jewish Gentile people. I just think back through just Matthew 8 and 9, and you have a, a number of different occasions. One is the centurion there. The centurion who, who comes to Jesus because of his servant who's sick, you have the demoniacs of Gadara, and also in Matthew 8. Jesus ministered to, to everyone that came to him. And remember, Jesus concludes the book of Matthew by commissioning his disciples to do what? Go make disciples of all the nations. 
if we come back to our passage today, the, the, the point is not that, that Jesus wanted his disciples to avoid Gentiles altogether, but that they should not focus their efforts on Gentile or Samaritan cities at this stage um, in ministry. In other words, this is, I would say this is more of a geographic focus right here than, than an ethnic focus. So what's the application for us? Gentiles. I was thinking about this over this this week, um, and I think in a really practical sense, I think it can be wise and strategic for us to begin by focusing our evangelistic efforts on those areas that are close to us, closest to our, our church and our homes. You know, the population in our city of Marietta is around, I think it's around 110,000 people. Um, Menifee is, is about the same. Last year, the real estate company um, Redfin released a report of the top 10 fastest growing cities in California, and, and Menifee tops the list at number one. The population has increased over 20% in just the past five years. It's exploding. How many of, you, how many of those people do you think claim to be evangelical Christian? 11%. I'm guessing a fraction of that 11% are actually part of a good church family. Now, I did a really quick search of our area. I found that um, 25 evangelical churches in Marietta, um, I think there's about the same in Menifee. There may be more. I, I realize that was just a quick search. But just by those simple calculations, every church would have to serve four to 5,000 people in their community. The need is, is massive right here. So I think it's both biblical and it's practical to focus our mission on those people who are close to us. And I don't just mean those that are close to our church building. I'm referring to those people who live in our neighborhoods. I'm referring to those people that that saw you leave this morning with your family to come in and worship God. Those are the people that God has placed as your Galilee. So, So start there. Today, I just want to encourage you to think about your neighborhood or your apartment complex or wherever you live as God's missional focus for you. How do you reach the people that God has placed right around you? Um, if you want ideas of how to connect with your neighbors, um, you know, join our evangelism class on Sunday evenings. Um, you don't have to do that, but we, we talk a lot about that. How, how are we going to be able to, to reach those people that are around us? But let me just give you one idea here. Um, this... Um, I have here uh, a picture of a resource that is not done yet. <laughs> I'm trying to redesign this resource that Pastor Tim wrote uh, many years ago. It was originally called The Message of the Bible. Now it's called, we're calling it Discovering God's Grace. It's a four-lesson evangelistic Bible study that walks through the story of salvation from God's word. Um, it's short, it's easy to read, um, and we'll provide you with a free copy uh, once it's done. But would you start praying about... Um, about what neighbors God might like you to focus on. Um, maybe you could, you could just go to one of your neighbors and ask if, if they'd be interested in just doing a Bible study with you. You might be surprised that they, that they agree to that. The first principle I think we can learn from this passage is, is simply to have a mission that's focused. Jesus began by answering the question, where are we going? Secondly, he answers another question, and that is, what are we saying? What is our message? And he explains that the message is simple. The message is clear. 
Jesus continues in verse 7. If you look down with me, he says, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you might recognize this message is essentially the same message that John the Baptist had preached back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, and the same message that Jesus began preaching in Matthew 4, verse 17. They called people to repent uh, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as we discussed at the beginning, um, th- this kingdom theme runs throughout the entire book of Matthew. I think there's something like 54 uses of the word kingdom throughout Matthew's gospel. And as a result, we have, we've already talked some about God's kingdom um, in past sermons, but I just want to provide a brief summary for those that haven't uh, been here for those sermons and because they might have been a couple years ago. Um, when you hear the term, the kingdom of God, what do you think of? Um, or as Matthew chooses to put it, the, the kingdom of heaven, which is functionally the same. Um, I want you to, to not think about the kingdom as, um, as a group of people, um, or as a king's realm, his empire, but as the actual rule and reign of the king. Right, just right there. Kingdom of heaven equals God's reign. R-E-I-G-N. For example, Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens... His kingdom rules over all, not just those subjects in his kingdom. His kingdom rules over all the earth. Uh, We can look at Daniel, also look at Daniel 4. See, he finished Daniel last week, but we're going back to it. Um, In Daniel 4, God humbles the most powerful ruler in the known world, Nebuchadnezzar, and he literally brings him to his knees. And God says through Daniel, um, I'm doing this to you, um, Nebuchadnezzar, for a period of time. He says, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And then Daniel offers some advice to the king. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. Does that sound like repent? And practice by practicing righteousness. As you are confronted by the rule, the reign of the Most High God, Repent of your sins. Turn in submission to him. And so what happened? Uh, We have a count there in uh, the end of Daniel 4. At the end of this days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? He concludes there at the end of the chapter. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Let me just stop here and say, if, if you're not currently living under God's authority, in recognition of God's authority... He is able to humble you, and he will do that for your good. Because there's no better place to be than, than in the kingdom of God under his good rule and authority. Yesterday, I was, my boys were riding bikes and scooters around the street as I was thinking about this reality. Sitting in my office, looking out the window um, down there, watching them run around. And um, a couple times I had to... I'd open the window and shout out various commands down from above um, 
telling them what to do and what not to do, where to go and where not to go. And I did that for their safety. None of us like to be told what to do, um, including my kids. But it is good for them to submit to my rule because I love them. I want them to be safe and protected and cared for. By the way, teens, young people that are here, um, believe it or not, your parents want the same for you. Um, I realize we're sometimes selfish and sinful as parents, but God has placed parents in your life as his authorities. That's good for you. There will come a day when you're making your own decisions and falling on your face and making mistakes for yourself. Um, But right now, obey your parents and the Lord. Honor them because that is God's good plan for you. As we get back to Jesus commissioning instructions to his messengers, let me also just say that if you're not currently living in recognition of God's authority, you're in no place to share about God's kingdom with others. Understand? Not hypocritical. I mean, you can proclaim, repent, turn from your sins, submit to God's rule. How, how do you do that when you're living in sin and not submitting to him? And so I would just say with Paul, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians 1, 27. You know, maybe this passage applies to you not because you need to go proclaim the message of the kingdom for others to hear, but because you need to hear it yourself. Have you submitted to Jesus as king? It's that simple. The message is, is simple. You know, our video um, titled The Message of the Bible, uh, which is in correspondence with that book that I mentioned, um, explains the gospel and the choice that we must make, you know, who will be king. Um, and uh, we, we actually just published a, a new version of that video yesterday. Um, uh, I uploaded it to our YouTube channel. Um, I've included the QR code there on your handout, and so part of your homework here, um, application. I want you to go go watch that this afternoon um, and consider, am I living under the rule of King Jesus? We've been given a simple message to share with others. It's peace, it's salvation, it's good news, but it's, it's kind of confrontational. It requires people to humbly submit to God's kingdom rule. How beautiful Upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Jesus has explained to his disciples where they're going, what they're saying, and now he will answer the question, what are they doing? The beginning of verse 8 shows us now their ministry, a verified ministry. As Jesus' disciples go and proclaim um, God's kingdom rule, he explains that their message will be, um, it'll be authenticated, it'll be verified by the works that they do. Verse 8 says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. Uh, each of these miracles is, is explicitly connected to Jesus' own miracles recorded in Matthew 8 and 9. He healed many of um, who were sick, um, including Peter's mother-in-law. Um, he raised Jairus' daughter um, back to life. He cleansed the leper who came and knelt before him there at the beginning of Matthew 8. He cast out demons into a herd of pigs, um, other demons out of the men who were mute later in chapter 9. Um, so these are all referencing miracles that Jesus has just, Matthew has just recorded in Matthew 8 to 9. 
The disciples have watched Jesus perform these miracles, and now he's sending them out to carry on his ministry to people. Um, now, at this point, it's important for us to remember, throughout the Bible, uh, we find miracles showing up um, at critical points in redemptive history. Um, I'll just give you an example. We see God perform signs and wonders through Moses and Aaron in Egypt around the time of the Exodus when God delivered his chosen people out of slavery in Egypt and he inaugurated the, the, the old covenant with his people, Israel. In the same way, um, we see another batch of miracles um, in the Gospels and in Acts through Jesus and his disciples around the time of a new kind of exodus when Jesus would deliver his people out of slavery to sin and inaugurate the new covenant with his people, the church. As a result, we, um, of God's kind of plan um, in redemptive history, we don't see many miracles today. Not because of God's power is diminished, um, but because his purposes are different. His timing is different. He can still heal people um, and do miracles, um, but the Bible shows us that it's not normative in our stage in redemptive history. So if that's the case, what's the application? How is our message verified if we can't do miracles? I think the answer is found when we go back and consider the purposes of those miracles. We talked about this in, in a past message. Uh, one of the purposes for Jesus' healing miracles was that they, um, they displayed Jesus' mercy, his compassion for people. Um, Jesus always um, identified sin as people's greatest problem, but he always cared for people's physical needs. So if, if you go out to share the love of Christ— Without displaying the love of Christ, you'll be like a noisy gong, like a clanging cymbal. However, you will earn an audience with people when you show them kindness and love them as Jesus did. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to show love to others? What, what needs do you know among your neighbors, your coworkers, your extended family? Is there a meal you could make? Is there a gift card you could send, text to you could send a call to make, something you could celebrate. As we look for ways to genuinely love and care for people around us, our ministry to them is it's verified, it's authenticated. As the saying goes, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Sharing the gospel is not about sharing how much we know, and yet it is essential that people have seen our care for them first. Now, just to clarify here, this doesn't mean that mercy ministry, uh, caring for people, replaces the need to verbally proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm just saying here, if we fail to display the mercy of God to people, um, in some ways it can be like trying to plant seed on rocky soil, on hard ground. Demonstrating the mercy of God to people can help, I think, to, to, to soften the soil of the hearts, to receive the seed of the gospel. So first of all, miracles displayed God's mercy, and we can do that. Um, but a second purpose of miracles was to, to demonstrate Jesus' authority. And once again, though we can't perform miracles, we can still demonstrate his authority. How do we do that? By living in submission to him. When we obey his commands, when we walk in his ways, we are, we are demonstrating that Jesus is our king. And it authenticates our message. 
Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to live in such a way that people will see the fruit of the gospel. They will see that we're submitted to the risen king. That authenticates our message. The fact is you, you, you cannot effectively preach the gospel of the kingdom if you aren't living under his rule, as I mentioned before. Jesus has given us instructions now about, um, or given his apostles instructions about their mission, their message, um, their ministry, and now he'll talk about their money. Now Jesus answers the question, what are we taking with us? Um, and he explains that it's, it's not much. <laughs> it's limited. It's restricted. Verse 8 continues, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Now, some, some of this might sound a little strange in our culture. Um, we don't wear tunics. Uh, most of us don't carry a staff. Now, the basic point of Jesus' instruction here is, is that they shouldn't receive any pay for their evangelistic ministry. Uh, neither should they go out and acquire extra resources for their travels. And there are a couple principles here I think that we can apply to our evangelism. First of all, evangelism is not about profiting in any way. Um, it, it's, it's all about extending the free gift of salvation that we have received to others. Have you guys ever read the fine print on those free, you know, food coupons? And it says, you know, not for resale. They don't want you to do what? Go out and sell what you've received for free. In Acts 8, one man thought he could purchase the benefits of salvation. Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone of whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The Holy Spirit and eternal life is a free gift to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is motivating your motivation for sharing the gospel? What is your motivation? Is it self-serving? Uh, even if it's not for money, um, are you looking for you know, reputation, praise from others? Because it's so, it's wrong. We give without receiving. Evangelism is not about profiting. It's about proclaiming. And secondly, evangelism is all about trusting in God's provision. The apostles, they, they were not to pack their bags with extra belongings um, and money for the road. Jesus wants them to trust God for his provision for their needs and, um, and the kindness of those to whom they're ministering. Um, now, it's clear here that um, uh, this limitation on what they took was not actually normative. If you turn over to, um, to Luke 22, Jesus gives them actually a different set of instructions um, for later travels. And yet, the principle of God's provision remains the same. If God sends us out to proclaim the gospel of, kingdom, gospel of the kingdom, that we can be sure that he will provide us with everything we need. Um, I can remember um, about five years ago, uh, Pastor Tim asked me if, if we would be willing to leave the East Coast and serve in gospel ministry here in California. Um, where the rent would be more than double what I was paying there in, uh, in South Carolina. 
he said that they, you know, thought that they could help cover my costs for two years here. Um, and yet here I am four years later. Uh, God provides. Um, and he uses God's people to do it. 1 Corinthians 9 says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I realize that God has not called each of you to, to get your living by the gospel, uh, nor has he called each of us to a type of missionary work that he sent the apostles out to do. But the principle remains, he wants to keep us dependent on him, on him in every way as we go out as his messengers. He will provide for us. And this leads us to our final principle where Jesus describes the method for their mission. Um, and it's, it's a solemn method. Beginning in verse 11, let's read together. Whatever town or village you enter, uh, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. As apostles travel... Um, they're, they're supposed to find their lodging with people who have no doubt heard about Jesus or, or, or people that have actually responded to his message. Um, they're supposed to extend this traditional Jewish greeting of peace on the house um, that will rest with them if they receive Jesus' words through the apostles. Peace will rest on that house if they are receiving the message of Jesus. But there's this solemn reality if they reject the apostles' message. If they reject the gospel of the kingdom, the reign of God, if they fail to repent, turn from their sins, they will remain under condemnation for their sins. Sodom and Gomorrah are used different places throughout the Bible to represent the judgment of God. Um, Jesus gives the solemn reality that those who reject the apostles' message, they're, they're not just rejecting the disciples. They're, they're actually rejecting God, and they will incur judgment on themselves. Um, shaking the dust off your feet is apparently a practice of the Jews um, when they left, you know, Gentile territory um, to represent the, the removal of the Gentile pollution that they were leaving behind. And yet the apostles, so, so for the apostles to practice this, you know, shake off the dust of your feet, what it represented, and to do that to fellow Jews was, is this reversal. The disciples later practiced this in Acts 13 and, and chapter 18. The Jews knew what this represented that they were the unclean pagans for having rejected the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. What does this mean? This doesn't mean that we go and share the gospel and then, you know, turn on people, insult them, condemn them um, when they don't accept the message. But it does mean two things. First of all, um, the pending judgment that is awaiting people should impact our earnestness in proclaiming the good news to them. Second Corinthians 5 verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, oops, there we go. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We plead with people because without God's forgiveness, they're destined for an eternity separated from in hell, from him in hell. So first of all, we, it, it motivates our, um, it, it compels us, um, it shapes our, the way that we speak to people. But secondly, it means that there will be sometimes be people who are, who disregard the treasure of the gospel. 
they discard, disregard it um, or discard it as worthless. And if people do that repeatedly, you recognize that you cannot change their heart. You, you can't argue someone into the kingdom. And so you pray for God to open their eyes. But as Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, you don't, you don't give dogs what is holy. You don't throw your pearls before pigs. You don't take it personally, but you, you consider it solemnly. Because if you're really sharing the gospel, they're not just rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus who sent you. As we conclude here, we've read um, Jesus commissioning instructions to his messengers. Uh, We've seen that our mission should be focused. Uh, We can't reach everyone. We need to be strategic with how we actually share the gospel. Um, Secondly, the the message is simple, but it's confrontational. We proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is seated on God's throne. Everyone, including us, must submit to his good reign and authority. Thirdly, our ministry is, it's authenticating. It's, it's, It's verified by how we display love and God's mercy to others. We don't just share with people spiritually. We care for them physically. Next, we learn that money is, is restricted. We don't share the gospel for any type of personal gain. Salvation is a free gift, so we offer it to others freely. We, we trust God to provide everything we need as we follow his mission for us. And then finally, we recognize that you know, God's method here is, is solemn. When people choose to reject the good news that we share, um, we don't take it personally but we take it solemnly because by rejecting our message, they're condemning themselves to judgment. Um, and this should shape the way that we proclaim the truth to others. We do it with love and with earnestness because their soul hangs in the balance. As we come to the end of our sermon today, I just want to conclude with a story um, uh, of a man who was sent out by God to share the gospel um, under very unique circumstances. Uh, this is a story I came across this week um, in Desiring God, written by David Mathis. And so I'm going to read part of this um, for you. Uh, this man was born in the late 4th century, um, what is now north, um, northeast England. Um, he was born among the Celtic Britons uh, to, uh, to a family of Christians. His father was a deacon. Um, his grandfather was a priest. But his parents' um, faith didn't really find a place in his heart. Um, one historian has said that he, he kind of lived toward the wild side. You guys know what that's like. But God really arrested him. He, he, he took him and, and showed mercy to him. Um, this man was kidnapped at age 16 by Irish raiders. He was taken back to the island where he served as a slave for six years under the tribal chief there, um, who was also a druid. And while he was in bondage, um, God unshackled his mind. He opened his mind to the gospel that he had heard as a child. Um, as a captive, he came to understand the, um, the Irish Celtic people, um, their language, their culture. Um, and when he eventually escaped from slavery in his early 20s, he, he was a changed man. He was a Christian um, at heart. And he, so he studied for vocational ministry. He led a parish in Britain for um, nearly 20 years. And that could have been the end of the story right there. Um, at age 48, um, he was already past uh, man's life expectancy there in the 5th century. Um, but this man had a dream, which kind of proved to be almost like a Macedonian call. An Irish accent pled uh, with him. We appeal, I'm not even going to try the Irish accent, so don't, don't worry. Um, we appeal to you. 
holy servant boy to come and walk among us, having known the language and the customs from his captivity, and having long strategized about how the gospel might come to the Irish, he, he answered that call to return to the place of his pain um, with a message of joy. The slave returned to his captors with good news of true freedom. Um, his method was that he had strategies with, strategized was a, as a bit unique. He, he decided to, to take with him about a dozen members, a team. It sounds a little bit similar to, um, to Jesus' approach, um, where he sent out um, his disciples. Uh, they would, uh, this man and his team would approach a tribe's leadership. They would seek conversion, or at least their, their clearance, and then they would set up a camp nearby. Uh, the team would meet the people. They would engage them in conversation, in ministry, serving them, as we talked about, and look for people who appeared receptive. Does that sound like what in our passage we would call worthy? In due course, um, one person uh, there or another would probably join with um, each responsive person to reach out to relatives and, and friends. They would minister there for a few weeks and months and then eventually pursue um, baptism and founding of a church. They would leave behind a, a team um, uh, team member or two and then th- to provide leadership for that new church, and then they would move on um, with a few converts to the next tribe. And with that approach, the church grew and spread throughout Ireland. And so, David Mathis says, in a strange and beautiful providence, St. Patrick had spent six years among the Irish as a captive. He learned their language, developed a heart for them. Like Joseph, sold into slavery to one day save Egypt and his brothers, God sent Patrick into slavery to ready Ireland for a coming salvation. If you put your faith in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are a captive set free. The question is, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to go out and rescue those that are still in prison? Are you fearful? Jesus said to his disciples, John 20, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son to take our place on the cross to bear our sin, to rescue us from slavery, to sin, to Satan, um, to our flesh. Father, we praise you for what you've done in our hearts um, and in, in our lives. And now we recognize your call upon every single one of us to now go out and make disciples of the nations. And some of us just want to sit on the bench. God, would you give us courage to obey your commission? Um, 
And we know that you will be with us. And your spirit will guide us as we go to preach the good news of the kingdom to a world that is lost and in need of Christ. We love you. Now, um, allow our love for you to compel us to go out and reach the lost for the glory of Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.